in association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project. This is Ancient Rome Refocused with your host, Rob Kane. History for the Brave. Ancient Rome Refocused is returning very soon, right here. You are listening to Season 3, Episode 15. The title of this podcast is Ancient Rome Refocused is Back on the Air. I promise you 2019 will be a very productive year with some very interesting adventures. I've been interviewing writers, historians, and artists that use Rome, Greece, and ancient Egypt as their creative inspiration. I've been busy, so tell your friends, email, and tweet the news. Soon new episodes will be posted and available for download. Check in on the group Facebook page where we will post notifications on the drop date for each new podcast. Notifications will also be on my blog at ancientromefocused.org. Ancient Rome Refocused is one word. Keep your Game of Thrones. Keep your Hobbit. Keep your Chronicles of Narnia. What need do I have for a dragon, a hobbit, and a lion when I have the Romans? In an upcoming episode, I will share an interview with Natalie Haynes. She's been on the show before. We interviewed her about her book, The Ancient Guide to Modern Life. She's currently in the 2019 February edition of the New Yorker magazine, where her book, The Children of Jocasta, is highlighted. Our podcast will review her novel, The Furies. Using Greek tragedy, Ms. Haynes tells the story of how a classroom of underachieving students in Edinburgh, Scotland, are affected by the story of Oedipus. The title recalls the mythological furies, which were the personifications of vengeance and retribution. After all, who understands tragedy better than teenagers? Haynes has spoken on the modern relevance of the classical world on three continents, from Cambridge, England, Chicago, Illinois, and Auckland, New Zealand. She is a fascinating, innovative speaker. She also writes for The Guardian, and she has a radio show on England's Radio 4. Yeah, it's um, it's quite a sad book, which is surprising, because I am generally quite happy. Um, but I always feel I should warn people, because otherwise I talk really jauntily about um, all the things that are in it, and then I feel like they get home and they're like, it's so sad. but it is a sad book. But it is um, a story about a woman whose name is Alex Morris, who has suffered a terrible bereavement before the book begins. Um, and as a consequence, she leaves London, England, where she lives and works and goes to Edinburgh in Scotland, which is where she had been a student. Um, she takes a job at a pupil referral unit um, to teach drama uh, to students who are in some way or another too damaged to be in regular school. And the only way she can get through to them is uh, with Greek tragedy, um, not particularly because uh, it's the first thing she thinks of, but because it's the first thing they don't know they hate yet, if you see what I mean. Um, she tries Shakespeare and they're like, Mur, we've seen the Baz Luhrmann movie of Romeo and Juliet, we don't like it. Um, and she, nobody knows anything about Sophocles, so when she suggests Oedipus the King, they sort of agree reluctantly to read it. 
and then these sort of stories of bloody revenge and uh, free will versus determinism, all those kinds of stories, um, grip these students. Um, and she feels like she's doing a good job, which in many ways she is. But at the same time as these lessons are um, playing out seemingly positively, one of her students is learning a, a terribly different lesson about Greek tragedy and about revenge. And thus it is itself, I hope, a modern day Greek tragedy, which is packed with ancient Greek tragedies. Another upcoming podcast is with the writer and educator Vicky Alvera Schechter. Her series of children's books from Cleopatra Rules to Alexander the Great Rocks the World provides a window for young adults into these notable events and these interesting ancient people. In an upcoming episode, we will explore her book, Cleopatra's Moon. Side note, I have to tell you, this may be a young adult's novel, but as someone who is not a young adult, I was totally hooked. It is a story about the daughter of Cleopatra. The book concentrates on Cleopatra's children. She had four, one with Julius Caesar and three with Mark Antony. Cleopatra's Moon was named one of the best books of 2012 by the Center of Children's Literature with excellent reviews in Publishers Weekly, The Wall Street Journal, and The Los Angeles Times. Yes, it's the story of Cleopatra's daughter, the only uh, one of her four children to survive to adulthood. Uh, She had three boys, uh, one child with Julius Caesar, three with Mark Antony. So she is the daughter of Mark Antony. And um, I was floored that there was a child who survived that family and made it to adulthood and, and even ruled. And yet, for the most part, most people don't know about her. So I just um, I became intrigued with um, with that story. And, and so it follows a little bit before uh, Actium. Uh, and then, according to the ancient sources, she was brought to Rome and brought up in Octavian's home by his sister Octavia who was Mark Anthony's recently divorced wife. So, I mean, you just couldn't have a more uh, complicated soap opera situation. They have not really any history books about her because there's not enough information. I would have to go the fiction route. So this was my first uh, foray into fiction, although I worked as hard as I could to work within the facts that we knew. There weren't many, but I, I did work within them. Although I have gotten um, more feedback, I think, from adults who read it. Um, I wouldn't want anybody to think that, that it's, it's written at a lower level in any way. But it is primarily marketed to uh, young adults. The, the issue, I think, is there's always a fascination. Like when, in, when kids or young teens or even older teens, if they're doing ancient civilizations, there's usually a handful of uh, girls, uh, typically, who want to do their special report on Cleopatra. There's this enduring fascination with her. And, you know, it just seemed like a way to satisfy that fascination, but but give it a little bit more depth and and dig underneath some of the... uh, fallacies about her 
and make her, a, you know, a, a flawed human being, but still a human being in the story. Okay, tell me what jumps into your mind when I say Julius Caesar. So, you know, we get all kinds of murder, uh, you know, uh, general, warrior, you know, all kinds of um, ruler, emperor, all kinds of stuff. Then I say Cleopatra, and we get, you know, we do get Queen, Nile, Egypt, but by the third or fourth word association, you definitely hear at least one kid mutter under their breath, slut. We we have uh, this connection to the past in looking at the way that a powerful woman, a woman who is threatening to somebody, is um, taken down a notch. And it's with these um, labels. And uh, I started to say that, yes, rap and pop culture and all that certainly encourages that. But what if we could look all the way back and see, you know, some ancient examples of this? And and, and so it kind of hooks them in. Uh, and that's really what I love to do is just, you know, to remind people we haven't really changed that much. In another upcoming episode, I will interview the international best-selling author, Arthur Phillips. We will discuss his novel, The Egyptologist, where we will slowly strip away the layers hiding the truth about the novel's main character, Ralph Trillibush. I have to tell you, reading this book was like going on an adventure. On many levels, the novel takes us deeper, layer by layer, in the search for the tomb of a pharaoh. At the same time, the novel is dusting away the layers of falsehoods that make up the character Ralph Trillibush. Who is the real Raph Trillibush? Is he an archaeologist who seeks a tomb? Is he a liar? Is he a flim-flam man? Is he a murderer? The Washington Post named Arthur Phillips one of the best writers in America. He has written the novels Angelica and The Song Is You and The Tragedy of Arthur. The Egyptologist is an international bestseller. If you like maps, drawings, and a mystery that spans across continents, this is the story you should read. So let's go through the possibilities. And I went through different kinds of ways I could tell the story. Ending up where it ends up, which is a mixture of different people's uh, letters and telegrams and journal entries and things like that. Uh, how did I know when it was finished? In the case of the Egyptologist, it was a very peculiar thing, which is the first thing I thought of, my first moment of inspiration for the book, ends up being the last two pages of the book. So I thought of the ending first. So I knew that if I could somehow, somehow get to back to that ending, then I was done. So and that, in the case of the just I, I, I knew I was finished when I had built the whole thing to lead the ending that I wanted, and I had then gone back and revised it you know, several times uh, and felt like I was ready to show it to my editor. Uh, I have never been on a dig. Um, I suspect that I would not be very good at a dig. Um, I'm not uh, able to sit and do the same task over and over and over again slowly. Um, I was never very good at making models when I was a kid. I'm not... I don't think I'm cut out for a dig, although I would like the idea of, you know, being the guy who breaks the last wall and gets to walk into the tomb full of gold. But besides that, um, I've spent uh, probably four days in Egypt in back in 1991, um, so that was very helpful. Um, when I started to write the book in 2002, my source material was, was a lot of books which I would only go to when I needed them. I started writing for my imagination, and then I realized, yeah, I really don't know anything about 
uh, ancient Egyptian theology. I better study up. I don't know anything about the history of these dynasties. I don't understand uh, how long this history took. I don't really understand who built the pyramids or even why. I better do some reading. And then I got into much more specific sorts of questions because I needed things like a particular uh, king who never existed to uh, exist in a certain point in Egyptian history, and I needed to, to represent certain things, and how would I possibly get these questions? So that's when you have to go and find an expert. And in my case, it was the British Museum. Uh, the British Museum website, which I went to looking for their uh, ancient Near East and, what is it called, their ancient Near East and Nubia department or something like that, they have, you know, the British Museum has this wonderful mandate. They're expected to answer the public's questions which is probably a perfectly easy job when the public is someone who wanders in and looks at something and asks a question. When it's some maniac writer who starts to email the guy in the Near East Department every day for months, um, then I'm probably more of a uh, harassing member of the public. But there was a wonderful Egyptologist at the British Museum named Marcel Marais, M-A-R-E-E, who very patiently answered all of my increasingly loony questions and who actually drew for me uh, the frontispiece of the book, which is the cartouche of my imagined king. So he was kind enough to draw me things in hieroglyphs and explain all of my misconceptions and walk me through how my plot might work and the geography. And So that was a, that was a huge resource. Um, similarly, I got some help from uh, Kent Weeks from the Theban Mapping Project. And after that, it was hitting the libraries and the bookstores. Those are just three people that are going to be featured on future episodes of Ancient Rome Focused. Check the Facebook page for the next drop dates for each episode. Thanks to all of you that have remained loyal to our show. What is then is now, as Seneca said. See you on the show. <laughs>